Welcome to the Emergence Discipleship Podcast, created to equip ourselves with insight, background, and context into the themes and topics we study each week, first as we gather together to worship Jesus, and then as we go and make disciples. Let's dive into this week's discussion. Well, hey there, Emergence, and welcome back to Theology Thursday. My name is Alex Hauser. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at the church. I'm here with Doug Becker, the man of the hour, the man, the myth, the legend. Did I yes. say your name? Doug Becker. Yes. Pastor of Theology. Good, mo- <laughs> Good morning, afternoon, evening. Hey. So we got a big topic today, my friend. Yes, we do. Predestination. Yeah, we shouldn't. We should not go off on a rabbit trail of movie quotes right now. We should dive into oh this because this is going to be a, this is going right. to be a longer, uh, longer conversation. I think so. If you guys have been following along with us in our last communities, uh, our leaders guide, uh, we had a couple questions about predestination, and so on the podcast, Doug and I jumped into that a little bit as just kind of like a precursor. But the idea of predestination certainly demands a little bit uh, more full of a conversation, mm-hmm. and so Doug and I are kind of endeavoring to do that here today. I've got a couple questions yeah. I'm going to throw at him, and then uh, and Doug, you can hopefully enlighten us a little bit about not just what you know, not just what predestination is, but the arguments for uh, maybe not for or against predestination, but the arguments that can, that can kind of arise right. in trying to define it, yep. and how we can maybe have these conversations in a civil way mm-hmm. as people that love Jesus. And, and so. just uh, to make you aware, um, there's going to be some overlap with what we talk about today and what um, so the, some of the thoughts that I shared on the leadership podcast on Monday, just because, uh, you know, I, th- I feel like those are... <laughs> we, we're, not, we're not presupposing have, that you listened to that. Right. You know? Well, the other thing, too, is that we can only record, you know, we call them Theology Thursdays because we record them for Thursday. But um, for the Leaders Podcast, we try to do that as quickly as possible so that you guys uh, can have that for your, for your communities week in mm-hmm. and week out. Yeah. All right, Doug, let's jump into this, man. Predestination. Okay. What is it? Where are, we, where are we getting this word from? So it's in the Bible, folks. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> Most recently, Ephesians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's not the question of, you know, if you, if, you, if you believe the scriptures, if you have a high view of the Bible, then it's not a question as to whether or not there is such a thing as predestination. It's a question of what does it mean to right. say that God predestines us. Uh, so it's used um, of our salvation in uh, two passages, the wor- the actual word to predestine, mm. okay? And that's going to be actually both both passages which have been preached recently here. Mm. So the first is in Romans 8, 29 through 30, where it talks about those whom he uh, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then uh, in our passage from Ephesians this last uh, week, uh, Ephesians 1, 5, and then again in verse 11. So he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And then verse 11 says, uh, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. Mm. Uh, The word is also used um, for uh, things other than salvation. Uh, The two other examples are Acts uh, 4.28. So in Acts 4.28 here, uh, Peter is talking about what the, like the events surrounding Christ's death, which God predestined to take place. And uh, then also uh, in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.7, it occurs. And then you, of course, have related terminology that you find in the Bible as well. So things like uh, election or choice, Mm. those words uh, actually... um, are uh, typically the same 
family of words as a, they're, they sound much different to us in, in English, but to choose and to elect is basically the same collection of words. Mm. Um, uh, and, and English translators just translate them differently. Mm. Uh, but you've got a bunch of, uh, passages that refer to that. You that refer to Christians, right? Virtually synonymous with chosen or the elect. Mm. So have you seen the chosen yet? I have not. Doug, but, uh, get on it. In mentioning that, I knew you'd ask that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they could have called it the elect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. That's not to say that these words are exclusively used of, um, you know, uh, bringing us to salvation, God bringing us to salvation, that kind of things. Like sometimes, like in uh, like in the intro, intro to Romans and the intro to 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to himself as chosen to be an apostle, mm. right? But then he goes on to refer to the saints who are chosen or elect in Christ Jesus, right? Yeah. So uh, this th- this point is just to say that um, that this language is all over the New Testament. It's also uh, all over the Old Testament too, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Well, but as well, but when we're talking about salvation in Christ, um, these words are applied to that. So so yeah. as we're talking about predestination, kind of the the big idea is you know we could talk about election according with that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 Now, Doug, in the leaders podcast, you offered us, you know, just a, a quick, you know, overview and you gave us kind of three views. Yeah. Uh, is that still true? You know, today, as far as how we're kind of, it working? has not changed since Monday. Okay. I don't, okay not that good. I know. Of. I'm just checking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes, yes, it still holds. So, uh, so I'm going to be I'm going to be using predestination and election as somewhat synonymous here. Sure. Okay, so similar things. Uh, because I think the conversation surrounding them uh, basically does the same. So, all right. So, given that you have these words in Scripture and these concepts expressed, as I said, anybody who believes the Bible is going to say, yes, predestination is a thing. But then you ask, what does it mean? And there are three dominant views that have been put forward. So, the first is what I'll call corporate election. And this is the idea that God elects that certain groups of people be shown his grace and we choose whether or not we will belong to this group. Okay, so like God chose the people of Israel mm-hmm. and there was a choice to become an Israelite. Mm-hmm. And so... In, I mean, yeah, you're born into it technically, but like... Yeah, born yeah, into it. But yeah. then I guess there were some some kinds of options where you could kind of become mm-hmm. an Israelite. So the idea yeah. of corporate election then is like, okay, God's chosen people are you know, for lack of a better term, Christians. Yeah. And we have a choice then to either be a Christian or not. Right. Yes. So God chooses the church as God chose Israel. I think the difference there where we talk about being born into Israel, I think the difference is, is that becoming part of the people of God in Old Testament was done differently than it is in the New Testament. Sure. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that's accurate to say that because uh, I don't assume that being part of the people of God in the Old Testament necessarily meant you were saved. Just being part of Israel, right? Sure, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, I think that's the way to think of it. Uh, another way to think of it is that God elects a, that that a scenario take place. You know that anybody who cho- freely chooses to embrace Christ is placed in the church, mm. and you know that those issues, those um, inter- those ways of explaining it, I think, are very close. Okay, yeah. So that's one way of understanding it: the idea that God elects corporate groups. But at the end of the day, it is our free choice that determines whether or not we are in those groups. Mm. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to – I'm, I'm going to 
I don't know if I should be butting in on this already, but that sound no, that already puts no. a heavy that already puts a heavy emphasis on the individual's responsibility to choose mm-hmm. whether or not they will or will not be saved. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So that's corporate election. Yes. This, that, that would be a free will view, like that. Okay. That free, and by that I mean that free will is the determining factor as to whether or not a person is saved. My autonomous exercise of my free will. Sure. And I guess um, it's worth, you know, kind of giving some context to this yeah. conversation a little bit too, that a lot of, you know, a lot of the arguments that kind of come at the end of the day, it's like, okay, I love Jesus. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. Okay. Mm-hmm. I understand what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross. Now, no. because of that, did I choose Jesus and therefore I am saved or did God bring about me wanting to come to him and choose him or did God very much bring about my own salvation? Yeah, Was that predestined the, before the that's world? That's the question. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, kind of spoiler alert that, that's the third view that I'll fair, Okay, about. fair so, enough. Let's jump in. Yeah, so, so first um, was corporate election. First was corporate. The second is election according to foreseen faith. Okay. So this is the idea that God in eternity past is obviously, you know, he has an ex- exhaustive knowledge of the future, hmm. right? God knows all things that will take place. And he knows who would freely choose to embrace Christ. And he predestines them. Hmm. Those are the ones he predestines. So God predestines those whom he knows will freely choose him. Okay. Okay. And as I pointed out yeah, on Monday. Yeah, so weird. It sounds <laughs> yeah. so weird because it, it's essentially saying, okay, well, God's all knowing, right? And he's mm-hmm. outside of time. Mm-hmm. So he can look and see, okay, Alex and Doug in 2021, these two guys, they're going to follow my son, right? Mm-hmm. I know that. So therefore predestined. Yes. But what is that act of, of predestining? What does it actually do yeah, under like, this scenario? Yeah, that, and that's what I think is the Achilles heel of this view, which is why I'm not really going to give it much attention in this okay. little discussion here. Oh, you should say you're biased too. You're a Calvinist. I am a Calvinist, right. so I subscribe to the third as yet unarticulated yeah. view. And I really don't um, know what I am, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the yeah. opposite side of Calvinism. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. think so anyway. And, and I'm going to give my disclaimer. I'll give my disclaimer about that in a second, but I, I just want to say, so the the reason why we're not going to lean very heavily onto the foreseen faith view here is simply because it's it's not as commonly argued these days, at least is, as far as I am aware, uh, particularly because it's not the strongest view. Because what it does is it basically says predestination is essentially meaningless, so if you assume under this view that God doesn't predestine any but uh, anyone, then what's different about the world? Answer: right. Nothing. It's all exactly the same. So it's just uh, there. There, it really it has no meaning. Saying that God predestines it has no effect. Um, God just predestines something to happen that He knows is already going to happen without His, you know. So it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, it's right. Not very helpful. The, the word is essentially meaningless in that. It's essentially in that case meaningless because. Yeah. At least with the second view, it seems a little bit like, okay, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, because I'm kind of processing through this as, as you're going through it, yeah. but it seems like the second view is like, okay, God, God's given us our free will, mm-hmm. and because he can see what we will do with that, and he will see that we, you know, quote unquote, choose faith, yeah. then therefore he knows who will follow him. And so what's like, what is he actually doing by predestining, yeah, you know, yeah. predestining? Like, yeah. what does that even I mean? I sometimes, there? I sometimes say it voids predestination of any real meaning. Sure. Yeah. So it almost eliminates the word from scripture a little bit. Uh, yeah. Or you could, and it would be exactly the same. Scripture would be exactly the same. Hmm. Uh, the third view is 
the view that I would call uh, that that I and many others would call unconditional election. Okay. Okay. And this is the view that God freely chooses which individuals will be saved without any conditions on the basis of his choice, as the basis of his choice. So okay. in other words, uh, then, so note, note that this is a, an appeal to some degree to mystery, right? That we don't quite understand why God, is, uh, why God decides to do one thing rather than the other, mm. which I think is a very realistic view of God, by the way. Mm. Uh, that that our understanding of those things would be limited, um, but that he nevertheless is the one who selects individuals for salvation, uh, and that it doesn't have to do with anything good or worthy in the person themselves. Mm. It's purely an act of God's free grace. Okay. So for unconditional election, for mm. reasons beyond our understanding yeah. that God himself knows that we don't really see... He has chosen those whom he would show favor to who will come to faith. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that is the act of predestination. That's, that's unconditional election. And as I said, the, I, a little bit of a disclaimer. This is an awkward, it's a bit awkward for me to talk about it because I do believe that that view best represents all of the biblical data. Mm. Okay. I think the question here is, you know, which view um, comprehensively makes the most makes the best sense out of scripture. And I think that does by far. Um, I think it also makes a bit, um, the best sense out of other doctrines. Okay. Okay. So for example, if you have something like total depravity, sure. Okay. Where, where human beings are, are unable to turn to Christ in and of themselves. Um, then, then, you know, you need something, you need an act of God in order to do that. Hmm. Um, to be fair, um, advocates of free will, particularly those who would be considered Arminians, um, acknowledge something like that. So they believe that all human beings have an inability to turn to God. And I think they, they say that because they want to avoid being technically heretics. They want to <laughs> avoid being Pelagians. Okay. Okay. But, um, but then they say God gives grace to all of humanity, enough grace to overcome that inability. Okay. And that's, they call prevenient or preparing grace. Okay. Um, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of that because I don't find prevenient grace explicitly taught anywhere in scripture. Mm. Uh, it seems like a, an ad hoc move to avoid being a heretic. Mm. Not only that, but any passage that you have that talks about total depravity. Okay. So for example, like first Corinthians, or Romans, uh, particular. I think I think particularly of uh, Romans eight, okay. where he, um, where he talks at the, about the person in the flesh does not please God. Indeed, he, he cannot. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and First uh, Corinthians, I think the end of chapter two, also makes very similar claims. If that if provenient grace is true, then Paul's not really talking about anybody in those mm-hmm. verses, right? God's actually overcome that in every. So mm-hmm. he's talking about a hypothetical person who doesn't exist anywhere. Again, so um, we we receive so, a definition that's almost you know making scripture meaningless in a sense, which is mm-hmm. the opposite again of of we should be pulling meaning from scripture, not trying to overlay yeah. meaning on top yeah. of scripture. The only, the only other thing that I just want to say at this juncture is that I'm essentially going to be laying out a case for the view that I think is right. Okay? And Unconditional you can, Yeah. This is not considered a first order issue in our church. This would be considered a second order issue. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's not to say that it's unimportant. I think it's very important. I, I, I unapologetically teach it and think that, you know, I think it's right. But, uh, so if you disagree with me on it, then, you know, you feel free to contact me if you'd like to talk about more or, or whatever. But like, I can't, I'm just all I can do is present what I think is the strongest view. Mm. Uh, would this be this. second order or third order? This would be second order, I would say. Really? Yeah, yeah, I would say. Hmm. I always because I always weigh it according to like like a first order issue. You're either mm-hmm. Christian or not. Second order issue. You're probably going to decide what whether or not to go to this church or that church. Yeah. And then third order issue. You will find people that believe both sides in the same church. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I think the way we define the the quick like so first order issues are orders are issues that are clear both clearly taught in scripture and significant. Okay. So they 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 are they have um, central importance for the structure of Christian doctrine, mm. and they are clearly taught in scripture. Mm. Uh, second order issues are basically where the preponderance of biblical evidence points in one direction. Um, and they're important enough to affect um, for for churches sometimes that it will affect policy or teaching, mm. but uh, and disagreement on it might affect what um, uh, which church one attends. Okay, mm. but they but they are not they're not first order. They're not they're not. It's because to say that to say that there's a disagreement on a first order issue. Is what we would be saying is that denial of that places one outside the bounds of biblical Christianity. Sure. And we do not say that with respect to this to unconditional election. Okay. Okay. Sure. So yeah, it's um, that's fair. Yeah. All right. So unconditional election uh, obviously is the one that you know uh, you attain to yourself mm-hmm. and. Um, Probably, I don't know where I'm at, to be honest. I, like, I, I believe that. <laughs> like, to me, it was funny because I sat down and I tried to put this into words before we had this conversation. It's like, what do I actually believe about this? Because I believe, that, at least the way that I'm processing through it in my mind, it's like we have a responsibility. Like, we must respond to the call of the gospel, right, in order to be saved. And the problem is that, like, we are incapable of doing that because we're blind to our own spiritual depravity, right, right, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, we must respond to that in order to be saved. But at the same time, I'm not aware in my non-Christian brain, pre-Christ brain that I'm even away from that. So it's kind of like God that's doing the work anyway. Yeah. And so I don't know where that would classify me, but <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I fall in that camp, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I find it, um, one of the things that I find appealing about this is I, I, I find this to be consistent in general with Scripture's teaching that salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Mm. It's, you know, that it's, it is, uh, this is saying that there, there's, there's a spiritual aspect. It's not just me making a decision, mm. right? Anyone can become convinced of something. Anyone can make a decision. But this is actually being bo- like the Spirit makes you born again. Uh. So, all right. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna lay out some of the biblical evidence. Sure. Let's okay? about uh, unconditional so, uh, yeah, election. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, okay. Let's get into it. All right. So first off, I find uh, there's several places in the New Testament, and uh, I think the starkest one is in John chapter one, mm. where we have explicit denials that becoming a child of God, salvation, whatever you want to call it, does not happen by an act of our will. Okay. Okay. So. 
John chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, verse, let's start at verse 12 and read 13 as well, okay? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, meaning Jesus, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Mm. All right, so there you have an explicit denial that the will of man is a decisive factor in, in turning to Christ. Now, sure. staying in the Gospel of John, okay, when we, if you go over to his Bread of Life discourse in chapter 6, um, one of the things that he, one of the many awesome things that Jesus says here, in verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Right? And then he goes on and he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So, who comes to Jesus? Those mm. whom the Father has given to him. Mm. Okay, and, um, and how many of those who come to Jesus all of them. are not all yeah, of them, all right? Of them. Yes, yeah. yeah. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Um, that I, again, this is the will of the Father that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, um, but raise it up on the last day. There doesn't seem to be a lot of slippage there, right? right? Um, notice also the implication that 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 not all are given to Jesus by the Father, right. and the place we see that even more clearly is in John chapter seventeen. And we'll go out of the jo- Gospel of John after this, but. Notice this, John, because you could say, well, well, you can't really say God gives, the Father gives all people to Jesus. Why not just say that, right? Because, again, all that the Father gives him come to him, and whoever comes to him he doesn't cast out. So Mm. that would be saying that the entire world is saved, which is clearly not a biblical perspective, right? Mm. Uh, um, And then there's other side questions about Judas as well, because I know that, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah, him being as a part of the original twelve and betraying Jesus, and like, what does that mean in there? Yeah, which goes down another rabbit hole that I don't even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So go ahead, John seventeen. Well, that, what uh, yeah, so John chapter seventeen, verse six. So notice what he says here. He says, "This is his prayer to the Father." He says, "I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word." Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Hmm. Right? Notice there, is the whole world given? Hmm. No, no, there's a distinction between those who are given and those who are not. Hmm. Okay, so... It's, it's pretty strong in the Gospel of John in several places. Another place we might look is, is the book of Acts in chapter 13, verse 48. Here you have um, Paul and Barnabas having a very successful ministry at Pisidian Antioch. And, um, and, Sorry, Doug, what, what was uh, that? This is chapter 13, verse 48. Okay. And um, this, is, this is Paul um, uh, essentially at the synagogue where he's being opposed, and this is where he kind of turns and says, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles now. And this is where his apostleship to the Gentiles really kicks into full gear. And he says, 
um, in verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life believed. Hmm. Right? Sounds very unconditional election-y. Right. And so now we've got, we have two different authors um, that are reinforcing this too. I mean, we've got oh, yeah. the Gospel of John and now we've got Paul. Because, you know, it just to reinforce the fact that this is a central theme throughout Scripture. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, that's not, and I'm also not covering, um, I'm also not covering all of the passages that we could um, sure. As well, so I'm looking at your notes over there. Yeah, if we hit every one of those passages. Yeah, we'd yeah, be yeah, here all be, afternoon. Be, yeah. This is abbreviated, and <laughs> and then you know I I think that um, the passage that we looked at this last week in um, uh, uh, depending on when you're listening though, but the beginning of the book of Ephesians is another very strong thing there. So mm. just to 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 lay it out there. Ephesians 1, uh, 5, and 11? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. Is okay. what I'm going to do. So, yeah, but 5 and 11 are specifically where predestination is mentioned. But he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. So notice we've got chose us in him before the foundation of the world and predestined us for adoption mm. to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Mm. Notice the unconditional election, right? Mm. What's the determining factor of his choice? The purpose of his will. Mm. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And then in him we have obtained an inheritance, and here you have it again, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Mm. Um I'd also note there that notice how in verse 11 it kind of dovetails the um, the question of predestination with the God's sovereign control over all things. Mm. You know, they're not unrelated um, issues. Mm. So that's some of the stronger biblical support um, for it. Um, the other really heavy-hitting passage is going to be Romans 9. Sure. And I Jacob wanna, and Esau. Yeah. Yep. And I wanna and I, I bring in Romans nine at this point because uh I mean because it's a it's a huge passage on this. Um but also because this is the passage where I think the corporate view finds its greatest strength. Okay. So as I noted on Monday in the leadership podcast, um people reading Ephesians one, which we just read, have chosen to attempt to uh, have attempted to read it corporately, right? Okay. To say that there is a, a corporate interpretation there, right? Um, however, um, one of the great weaknesses of that view is that there's no contextual markers in Ephesians 1 to indicate that that's what's going on. In other words, if you don't already have the idea of corporate election in mind, mm. then it's unlikely that you're going to find it in Romans 1. Like, there's no... There's no indication that that's what the case. Okay. Um, and it is, one could say, 
one might argue, well, but a Jewish person would think that because the Old Testament often talks about the corporate election of Israel, right? Mm. But there, but I note in Ephesians one, he doesn't use the word election; he uses the word predestination. Right. Okay. And so, um, he does say chose. He does though. say yeah. chose, right? Yeah. But but um, the you know the 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 um, crux of it. The, the crux, right, is is predestination. Sure. Um, the other thing that uh, I would note too is that, and this is I think the strongest thing in Ephesians one is that several of the things that accrue to the individuals that he's talking about are individual experiences in the New Testament. So, for example, redemption, forgiveness of sins, the reception of the Holy Spirit. Those seem to be things that are individual, that individuals experience, not corporate groups. Okay. So I think that the best way to look at... um, at Ephesians 1, when you're considering the corporate election question, is to say, like, what is the positive evidence that Paul is speaking of a corporate body being elected Mm. and then people freely choosing whether to be in that body or not? Like, what is the actual positive case that could be made for that? And I don't think that there is. There is a positive case that could be made here in Romans 9, to which we now turn. Okay. And so we'll, we'll look at that, okay? Sure. Um, Big passage. Yeah. The other thing that I'll just note before we hop into here is that for the person who affirms corporate election, okay, uh, unconditional election is off the table. The Calvinist view is off the table if, you know, uh, for, for if you're saying corporate election and free will, right, the, mm. for that as a free will position. However, you can affirm both unconditional election and corporate election as long as you're not taking the free will part of that, right? So in other words, you lost me. any text that is alleged to say, to, to, to point to corporate election, mm-hmm. okay, works under unconditional election. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Um, however, texts that speak of individual election uh, are problematic for people who only hold corporate election I see as a and for and free will I see so the the texts that those under a corporate election would use to support corporate election yes um, would also work towards supporting unconditional election I, I'm sorry would not work now would work let me put it let me sure. put it let me put it this way so the the, the goal of theology is to make the best sense of all the biblical data. Sure. Okay. So if you believe in unconditional election, that God elects individuals, right? Then you have no problem with the corporate texts because those fit nicely under your view. Right. Right. But if you believe in corporate election and free will, then Uh. any, then if any passage is talking about individual election, then that's a defeater for your view. It's problematic for the, for the corporate election. Yeah. Uh, that, okay. Okay. I'm so, yeah, yeah. The, um, the, I suppose the only way in which unconditional election would be false then would be, you know, if it's, if it's being held up against the corporate view, is if one could demonstrate that there's no text that talks about un, uh, individual election. Okay. Individual unconditional election. Okay. But again, like I would lean into like the language that we saw in John, right? Those whom you have given me as opposed to the world, right? Like, like. 
Um, it doesn't sound like he's just saying, well, this, this actually is a big point, is that a lot of these things, the, the direct object of the verbs, right, mm. of choosing, of foreknowing, of predestining, right, is personal. Mm. It's never God chose a scenario, right, sure. that God cho- predestined uh, a thing, like he no he he foreknew us he predestined us he chose us he called us mm. uh, it's always a very personal thing. Mm. This uh, it's funny I know we're about to dive into Romans nine because it reminds me you know Jacob and Esau is, is is probably the most solid passage. It also reminds me of Pharaoh too mm-hmm. when he when yeah. God talks about how he hardened Pharaoh's heart. You yes, know? yeah. And then the passage that talks about uh, the will of the Father to do to the clay pot as He will, right? Yeah, which is Romans nine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so I suppose I'll just preempt this here. So I think the reason why people have a diff- have difficulty with unconditional election is the idea that kind of the, it's not the unconditional election part, it's the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that, mm-hmm. that if, if, if he elects some, then he doesn't elect others. Right. Okay. Um, this is Every argument I've ever heard against yeah. unconditional election does not come necessarily from a logical standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint of the idea that, well, what if yeah. someone I care about, family member, friend, or somebody else is not elected? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and there's a bunch of things I'd want to say to that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, nowhere in the scripture, I think, is election treated as, like, inevitable. Mm-hmm. Like, in other words, that, like, if you're... If you don't know Christ that, you know, you should just assume you're not elect and forget all about it. Right. <laughs> no, the idea is preach the gospel to them and, you know, pray that the Lord will open their heart to receive the gospel hmm. and that they are, you know, that which would mean that they are indeed elect. So, hmm. like, nowhere is it like if you're not elect, like, the only way you know you're elect is if you embrace the gospel. And the only way to embrace the gospel is if someone preaches it to you right. and brings it to you. So, How blessed are the feet of those that carry good news. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but to that objection, I want to say two things. Okay. So the first is, well, I don't know, maybe it'll end up being more than two things. Mm. But uh, the first is that the idea of, um, of predestination and let's call it reprobation, right? The idea that that, that that means some are not chosen. Okay. Those two concepts are not symmetrical concepts. What do you mean? What I mean is that they're not exact opposites of each other. So, in other words, in election, what is God doing? He's taking someone who is freely chosen to be evil, and he's making him into something they're not. They have not freely chosen to be. Okay. Namely, a saved saint who loves God, is filled with the Spirit, and will be conformed to the image of his son. Mm. Right? If left to my own devices, I would not have chosen God right. if it were not for God exactly. changing my exactly. desires. But now think of the reprobation scenario. Mm. God's not changing anyone mm. from what they've chosen freely to be. Of themselves. Yeah. Mm. And so there's, there. I think this kind of gets to the heart of what grace is. Mm. Because grace by definition is undeserved, right? Like, right. The, like I choose to give what I want to those whom I have. Do I not have the freedom to do this? Think of Jesus's parable of the, of the workers in the field. Right. Mm. Um, and like the, uh, the, 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 you have to take into account 
God's justice in judging sin. Mm. That had God chosen to save zero people, he would still, he would be, still be God in all his perfection. Mm. And he would be, right? In fact, like the, the, the conundrum that the Bible wrestles with is how does God maintain his justice while forgiving sinners? Right. Right? And so... Um, I think, you know, you have to have that plugged in that there's that there's there's no one. So like you can think of like two different scenarios. I'll sometimes explain mm. one of which it's so sometimes it's painted as if like two people are being held up at gunpoint by a guy who's going to kill them. Superman swoops down and mm. picks up one and flies them out of there. Mm. Right. What's the deal? Superman, why didn't you? Save both. Right? Why right. didn't you save both? You easily could have grabbed both, right? Mm. But that's not really the scenario here. The scenario here is closer to two death row inmates and one gets a call from the governor pardoning him and one doesn't, mm. right? That neither are deserving of salvation, mm. okay? So, um, and again, I, I'm not trying to draw a moral equivalence between maybe what you've done yeah, and a death yeah. row inmate. Or I'm crooked just, or crooked politicians. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm just using this as an example. Or, yeah, or God and a governor, right? Yeah. Um, I'm just using it as an example. As a, the other thing that I'll that I want to note here is, and I guess this is the place to, to the time to say it, is that um, uh, uh, there's there's a problem in any free will position in that holds that God desires to save all people. Okay, so so if I say God wants to save everyone. Yeah. Right then, the question inevitably arises: Well, why then is not everyone saved? Right. Right. Well, the how does how do free will advocates argue? They say, well, because God loves us and wants us to freely choose to love Him back. Okay. Okay. So now, now the problem there is that that supposedly. Uh, maintains God as 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 loving but I ask anybody who says that on what view of love okay is the ability to make a choice a higher good than salvation okay okay so an example I frequently use if my child is running into the street mm. okay um, and I yell stop and, and she's not stopping okay? I don't say, well, I want her to freely choose to obey me. Right. In fact, if I said that, you'd be like, what an unloving father. Right. And there's a point at which I'm going to do everything that I can to, to countervene her free will, mm. her free choice, and I'm going to save her. Mm. And if I did, you'd say that was a loving thing to do. Right. Okay. So, in other, so if given the fact that not all people are saved and given the fact that God could save all people under any model of God, unless you, you deny his sovereignty, right? Sure. Um, then uh, the question is, why are not all people saved? Right. And the only thing a free will advocate can say is because God wants to preserve our free choice for some undisclosed reason. Mm. And, that sometimes the reason is given as well. He wants love to be genuine, okay? Which mm. I think is an ad hoc um, definition of love. Like I don't think like really is. It does love have to be freely chosen? Like mm. it's I don't I don't see why that's a, a prerequisite for that. That seems like a very weak argument. Mm. So yeah, so there 
Um, so it's, I guess I, I bring that up to say, to bring us back around to the subject of Romans 9, which talks about vessels that God has, you know, that the, the potter making the clay, and does he not have the right over the clay to make some vessels, you know, for glory and others for, dis, mm. that, for, for destruction? Mm. Um, and uh, I just say that to me, that, that, that the free will option does not rescue you from that problem. Mm. Uh, in fact, I think it compounds it because now you're saying that God doesn't love anyone enough to to save them despite themselves. Oh. He would let all of us run into the road yeah. should we choose to do so. It's a cruel depiction. It's yeah. And and so I'm just saying that like I know the attractiveness of of free will positions are that it seems to get God off the hook for something. Well, but, it's because we have cult it's like it's culturally attractive. You know what I mean? Yes. We have these cultural yeah. I, I guess you know, worldviews that are kind of born into us as, right. we, as we grow right, right. today in the modern day, you know what I mean? In, in 2021, yeah, yeah. we struggle with, we struggle with things like we struggle with the idea that God would choose some and not others. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, how mean I want to be included. You yes. Know? Yeah, or yeah, I want yeah. this person to be included. But yeah. if you look again, like you're saying, Doug, like if you look at the text mm-hmm. and show like, this is the most loving that we can even understand right, of right. how God chooses to act against our world. And the thing that you really pointed out that stuck with me so far in our discussion is the fact that, you know, him choosing to elect someone, him choosing to save someone, um, is, is his will, his grace, his love. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If he were to not do that, he would still be just Yes, because left to my own devices, our own devices, we would choose sin. Yeah. We do 10 times out of 10 until God acts upon our life. Yes. Um, okay, yep. let's get so, into Romans so let's nine. Like a, yeah, let's. So I'm not going to go like verse by verse through everything because we've got uh, some more to talk about here. But, sure. um, but I do want to read the kind of the beginning of it. So uh, let's pick up at um, uh, verse eight. Now let's pick up at verse six. Okay? okay. Now essentially the idea in Romans nine is this. So Romans nine is part of a bigger package. Romans nine through eleven. And the issue is that at the end of Romans 8, okay, Paul has said nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the way you have that love is by believing the gospel, right? By embracing Christ by faith, Mm. okay? And nothing can separate you from the love of God, right? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, but... There's a lot of people uh, in the from the Old Testament. I seem to remember a lot of people who were called Israelites or Jews in Paul's day, um, who were made lots of promises by God. Mm-hmm. And Paul, if your gospel is true, then a large amount of them are cut off from the love of God. Hmm. So are God's promises really that solid? <laughs> okay. And that's the problem he needs to address in Romans nine through eleven. Okay. And one of his answers to that before before we jump into that, yeah. could you could you explain that a little bit more, Doug? Mm-hmm. So you were saying that there were promises to the nation of Israel that, according to God's, according to Paul's gospel, you know about yeah, the yeah, good yeah. news of Christ. It, what is the problem that that creates? I don't. The understand. problem that that creates is that so so the gospel is based on God's faithfulness to His promises. Sure, He promises to save all of those who trust His Son so much so that we can walk into suffering in this life 
and know that that it doesn't even compare to what God has promised us, right? Sure. So everything is based on God's fidelity to his promises, whether he can be trusted, okay? okay? But in the Old Testament, right, God promised the Israelites that they are his people, uh. that they, that, right? And and that 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 their offspring will you know will will that they are going to continue as his covenant people. Mm. But if the gospel's true, then it means that that's that 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 there are a large number of Israelites for whom that is not true. I see. And so, how good were the promises of God to them? Can we really trust the promises of God in the gospel? I see. That's the problem that he's. Th- okay. And part of his answer to that is. Even it is this, that even when you read the Old Testament, not all who are descended from Abraham belong to Israel. Sure. So in other words, just because you are physically a, a descendant of Abraham, that doesn't make you a child of God, even in the Old Testament. Okay. Okay. And so case exhibit A for that argument is the fact that um, you have Jacob and Esau. So the, the very existence of, is, of Israel, quote-unquote, right, right, is testimony to that, that there is one son who is chosen to bear the promises and another who are not, who is not. Sure. And so he says in, uh, ver- so let's say, uh, pick up in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, At about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." And then he goes on to raise the natural objection. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then notice you have another one of these explicit denials of human will. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Mm. Okay, so... So what we're doing here is we're weighing the corp- a corporate interpretation of this over against the unconditional individual election mm. view of this. So uh, first off, a case can be made, a fairly strong case can be made, that the election that is being talked about here are, um, are, is, is a corporate election. And so that's suggested by particularly verse 12, okay, um, so notice in verses 12 and 13, you have a quotation, uh, you have two quotations. One is from Genesis 25, the other is from Malachi 1, and both refer to Jacob and Esau as, as whole nations. So Jacob represents the nation of Israel, and Esau represents Edom. Okay. okay. By the way, Esau I hated is uh, another passage that requires unpacking. Mm. Okay, it doesn't mean hate in the sense that we mean it. It's mm. in the same similar vein as to when Jacob, it says that Jacob loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. Right. He didn't hate her and like, I'm going to kill her. Yeah. Right. But okay. not necessarily in a malicious way, but right. showed favor for one versus it's, the other. It's biblical, it's biblical idiom in both te- testaments for favor for one over the other. Okay. Um, 
but at any rate, so, but if you look particularly at the Genesis passage, this is when Rebecca is being told about the sons who are to be born to her, right? And she's told the older will serve the younger. Mm. So in other words, Jacob will be the one to carry forth the promise, right? Mm. But, but in the preceding verse there in Genesis 25, he says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples within you shall be divided. Mm. Right? So that's a corporate thing going on there. Mm. Okay? Um, also, as we've already noted in the Old Testament, God's election does tend to be corporate, and Paul clearly does work within the framework of Old Testament theology. And then, um, and then, um, uh, people of this view also will also try to um, adjust the meaning of this entire passage. So, if you take the corporate view, you might want you might say then that the election that Paul is talking about here. Are, is not really election to salvation, but rather it's like uh, his salvation historical roles. So like, mm. you know, to be to be important in my plan or something like that. Okay. Okay. So, so there is definitely a a, a, um, a a case that can be made for the corporate view here. However, notice that the corporate view doesn't do much to really help Paul in his argument, right? Paul needs to show how it is only individuals within Israel that are saved. Mm. He, that's what he needs to explain, why it's not the corporate entity, why it's just a remnant, as he will say. Sure. Um, so it's hard to see how an argument about corporate election advances that purpose. Okay. Okay. Um, secondly, and I, I think that this is a really big deal, is that uh, various terms are applied in these verses to the elect um, that are applied elsewhere to individuals okay. by Paul. Okay, so and especially look at look at Jacob and Esau here, right? First of all, it refers to their birth, but then notice it says, "Why did God not choose Jacob? Not because of works." Hmm. Okay, that is very individualistic. Pauline language. Specifically, go back and look at reread Romans 4, 2 through 8. Um, we can look forward to uh, 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 6, where it's like, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And the, in passages where Paul talks about not by works, he's typically talking about, right, the contrast between an individual's faith right. and an individual's works. Sure. Okay. So this, uh, likewise, election in Paul is outside of this is um, uh, has individualistic uh, individual um, uh, is applied to individuals. So back to chapter eleven and verse five. So too at the present time there is a remnant right. elect by grace, um, and um, then uh, later on uh, two verses later in verse seven. What then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Right. So again, a contrast between corporate Israel and the elect. So even from the descendants of Israel too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if yeah. I'm skipping ahead, but in 927, mm-hmm. it says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Exactly. For the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Right. So the Exactly. So the argument that, that it is the remnant within mm. the corporate body who is uh, saved, who comes to, who actually knows God, mm. that is... Uh, that, is a lot has a lot more to do with 
the individual choice to follow God, mm. right? Then, um, or you can say maybe election, yeah. then, then a corporate thing that everybody does. Right. He said that earlier too. I think he point. it was voice, verse six and seven, I think. But uh, in verse seven, it says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then in verse eight, he, he explains it. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the premise of the promise that are counted as offspring. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The, the only, um, and then, and then one other observation that I, I just want to make here about verse 14. And this is something that was, um, pointed out. I think the first guy, I think John Piper points this out in his, he's got a whole book on this passage. Um, verse 14 says, yeah. what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By yeah, no means. Exactly. And then you have a very similar objection raised in verse 19, right? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Mm. Now, a, a very, these are two, the importance of these two questions is that they tend to confirm that we are on the right track if we are understanding this to be an unconditional election because right. those are exactly the objections that you would that one would raise yep. to this point right yeah so uh they, they those kind of confirm it now the final thing that i just want to touch on real quick are um passages um such as first timothy 2 1 through 4 that are sometimes raised in objection to this view okay okay um so just flip in there quickly. Um, so First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. So now, if you just read um, verses 3 and 4, which are usually the ones that are, that are read alone here, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. For, how can you read that alone? It says, this is good. <laughs> what does this mean if you don't read what's before it? <laughs> Who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay. Okay, so if that's the case... That sound doesn't sound like God's about the business of electing some and not others, right? Sure. Um, but here, I think, um, <laughs> again, we need to read the whole passage. So, right. first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Mm. And that's what's good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to come uh, to knowledge of to the knowledge truth. Of the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Okay, so so there's a bunch of things in this in this in this passage, but. I, the key, the key question I think that we need to ask here is that when Paul is speaking in this passage, particularly in verse four, where he says he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, what does he mean by the word all? Okay. Okay. Like for example, when when we're told that all of Jerusalem and Judea were coming out to be baptized by John the Baptist, uh, does he mean all people? Right. Uh, in particular, obviously not. Well, obviously because, not. Right? right. Like not. And so, um, I'm sorry, uh, you said in particular. So in particular here with this, this, what we, what the question we might want to ask is, does he mean every person without exception hmm. or, or all kinds of people without distinction? Okay. And I think there's a strong argument for the latter in the hmm. context. So look again at verse one. 
First of all, then, I urge that supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for who? All people. All people. Same expression. Mm -hmm. And then, what's the next phrase? Yeah. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead. So, in other then, so, should be made for all people. And then, in a, in a grammatically parallel, right, for all people, for kings and all who are in a high... Hmm. In, in other words, it's, it's almost for all people. That is, for kings and those who are... And then he goes on... So, in other words, he says all people, and then he describes a specific kind of people. Sure. Okay? It's the same idea as, like, Paul, that Paul says in Acts 22, 15, where he says... Uh, he's summarizing like his conversion and what Jesus says to him. Mm. And he says, for you will be a witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Right. And that, but then in, in, in a few verses later, he says, go for, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Right. Like he doesn't mean that Paul, that, that you're going to, um, going to preach to every single human being on earth. Sure. Right. As he especially means you're going to be a witness to all kinds of people, especially Gentiles. Okay. So I think that the I think that the idea here is um, it's helpful. Plus, notice too that this is also um, there's also a contextual confirmation here as well in verse seven. Uh, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the, I think the idea here is that God's will is to save all kinds of people, including kings who are in high positions, okay, so, and then including the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, um, I think that that makes the most sense out of this, this passage. So that's, mm-hmm. that's typically how someone who holds the unconditional election would, mm-hmm. would um, read a, a passage like this. Sure. So... There's some typical application questions that that arise with this, right? Mm-hmm. And the first one that always jumps out is what then is the purpose of evangelism or prayer or, yes. you know, these kinds of things. And, you know, I have to ask it, even though we just read in, you know, verse one of chapter two. Right. First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Right. So like Paul's saying, pray for these people, mm-hmm. you know. Spread the gospel. Like yeah. every message of the New Testament is, this is the good news. Go for, go forward, therefore, and share it. Right, right, right. But, you know, the question does arise. So then, all right, if, if God elects those people, then what role do we, pl- or what role does evangelism play yeah. or praying? Play I think it play. That? yeah, I think the way to think of this is that God elects also that certain means be used to save people. Like he chooses to use us. Mm. I kind of think of doing any kind of ministry as like bring your kid to work day. Mm. Where like, oh, dad, you know, you're sitting down coloring a picture while your dad works his butt off. <laughs> and then you come home and you're like, look what, look what Junior daddy, did. Yeah. yeah, you know, you're helping daddy. Or like he lets you press start on the copier or something <laughs> like that, you know. Um, uh, where, you know, yeah, we're working. And we're, we might be working hard, mm. right? But... In the end, as Paul says, you know, uh, God, only God gives the growth. Right. So, like, I think I think a good illustration of this is what happens when Paul first encounters uh, Corinth, the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Okay. Because what, what happens is they, they arrive there, and then basically um, he, he, um, 
he has all this like uh, he he find he he butts up against all this op- opposition. Okay, mm-hmm. um, so um, he says to them like, "Your blood be on your hands." From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles again. He, he says that a couple times in Acts, <laughs> and then he let he leaves there and and goes to um, uh, to, to to minister out of a, a man's house there, um, and. So you can understand how he might be kind of discouraged, but he's also seeing some fruit, right? Mm. And the Lord visits him in a dream and it, it, or vision, it says, maybe not necessarily a dream, and he gives him a word of encouragement. And what does he say? He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Hmm. Right, so, like the idea is that there are those in this city who are mine, hmm. um, as as he as Paul like elsewhere will say in Romans eleven, um, comparing the the situation today to the to Elijah's day where he says, um, what does the scripture say? I have kept for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and then he says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, hmm. right? That God is like I've got my people. And the way they are going to come to know me is through your preaching. Hmm. And that's the means that I am going to use to save them. Hmm. And so we preach, we believe, but we understand that it is God who, uh, who gives life to dead hearts. Hmm. It's, it gives such a cool perspective on what we're called to do in the Great Commission. You know what I mean? It's like, and I, I you know, I think I said this a little bit in the leaders podcast, but it, it removes a little bit of the daunting task of trying to convert someone or trying to uh, share yeah. the gospel in a way that they believe it and, and come to Christ, right? And yeah. Paul says this too. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, God does the growth, right? Right, right. Um, and, and for us too, it's just like our role is not to go out and and change someone's heart, right? Our role is to be faithful, to share the gospel. And like this passage too is is putting a bigger light on that of saying like, God knows his people, our role is to go get them. Yep, you know what I mean? Just exactly. go, just go get them. Yeah. Like God, like we, we will succeed, you know, yeah. and the gates of hell or, you know, the hell shall not prevail against the gates. Right? Yeah. And, it doesn't mean that we can like, that we should like purposely not do a good job or something. Right. right. Cause God's going to take care of it anyway. But it does give us confidence that like when we're insecure about the job we've done, mm. that God, you know, uses very meager things. I'm kind of reminded of like of um, uh, a little anecdote about Charles Spurgeon when he used to preach. Mm. Is that because because the common with any teaching I find right mm. right before you do it, you what you what do you th- you normally think? This sucks and it's gonna <laughs> suck. I've rewritten I've rewritten sermons yeah. the night before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, like, and, and you always come to the same conclusion. At the end of the day, I get up on stage and I preach God's word faithfully. He'll do what. And he that's does. how it is, right? Yeah. And it's really the case with like any communication of biblical truth, whether it's formal preaching or just sitting down and talking with someone. And the anecdote is like. As Spurgeon would get up to the pulpit, he had some stairs to climb, and with every step, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Hmm. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And um, because he understood that that's really what changes hearts. Hmm. This is not just us trying to figure out ways to be clever, to Hmm. convince people. Um, We do work hard to persuade all people. 
Yeah. Right? We appeal to them, be reconciled to God. But the, the, the true transformation that needs to take place is something that only God can do. Mm. I, I love, there's a missionary prayer all the time. It's just like, Lord, show me how you're working in this person's life. You know what yeah. I mean? Because I want to participate in it. Yeah. You know, I want to be a part of that. God's the one who's already at work and our, our role is to be faithful and how he calls us to do that. Yeah. And it's just cool to see how he works in that, you know? And it's funny as we're talking through this, there's a number of people that come to mind that we can overanalyze predestination sometimes a little mm-hmm. uh, too much to a fault. Yeah. I think yeah. I have no idea if, if this, this one guy in particular is going to come to know Christ. I have no mm-hmm. idea, but my role my charge from me, from Jesus, is to share the gospel. Yeah, I, I think of it as uh, something that gives us confidence mm. in, and also something that gives us thankfulness. Yeah, yeah. Right, and and kind of like, and and can also help us, you know, theologically in, in, under, in, in seeking to understand what God is like and everything. Mm. Uh, the nature of grace is a big thing. Mm. But in terms of like, you know, thinking that, I don't know, I... Um, there's other things, you know, it, it can become a divisive issue, though, you know, mm. where, like, it's also a very juicy argument. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and... And these days we love juicy arguments. Love juicy arguments. Yeah. Love them. And uh, there's nothing wrong with, you know, uh, a heated, spirited back and forth if it's mm. done in the spirit of love and, and, and humility. Mm. Um, but that's not what this doctrine is here for. Ultimately, that's not what it's told for it but it is it is scripture is here so that we can wrestle with it and so that we could say i don't understand but this much i do and i'm going to you know try to be faithful to that and then some things are too wonderful for me (laughs) yeah some things are just too wonderful for me awesome doug thank you so much for your your work in preparing this with two days notice (laughs) no problem um guys thank you so much for tuning in today as always if you have any questions Email Doug, <laughs> doug.becker at immersionsnj.org. And, uh, and thank you uh, for tuning in. Thank you for your, your faithfulness to the call of the Great Commission. Uh, yeah. Let's pray that, that God would make us more bold and more faithful to that end, that we would be people that speak boldly in the name of Christ, that love others well, and, and uh, in, in areas like this that can be tougher to define at times, that we walk with grace and humility before him and before others as well. Um, thank you, guys. We'll look forward to chatting with you soon. Enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah.